that you would give me grace, Lord, to explain it in a way that honors you. I pray, Lord, you'd be my strength. And God, I pray that your spirit would help us to see what you desire for us to understand from your word this morning. Lord, we give you this time. I pray, God, this would be an opportunity for all of us, Lord, to corporately worship you in the way that we hear the good news and respond with faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I am thankful for Mike and Kelly filling in for me these last couple of weeks. And uh, both those guys always do a great job. And excited to continue in the book of Hebrews. You know, we went through probably the most difficult passage of Hebrews. And I was like, I'm out of here. I'm going to the beach. It was a good time to go after 6, 4 through 8. That's a tough passage. But in honesty, uh, the context really dropped there because we tried to hit on it some. This is so crucial to understand in light of verses 4 through 8. This morning, we're going to read verses 9 through 12. The title of the message this morning is Confident of Better Things. Confident of Better Things. Let's read the text. It says in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. As we look at this idea of confident, of better things, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on three areas that the author of Hebrews speaks of in these verses. Three areas that he speaks of, and he's going to speak of three different areas, and I pray that as we go through this, it'll begin to unfold. The first area that he speaks of is a word of comfort, a word of comfort. Notice how he comforts them, and before we notice that, I want you to go over to verse 4 again. Let's go back to verse 4 through 8 and then read it into verse 9. He says in verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end to be burned. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You see what he's doing here? And I really believe it adds to the argument that what he's speaking of in verses 4 through 8 is not a believer who loses their salvation. I don't believe we can find that in the pages of Scripture. There's just too many passages of what Jesus speaks about in John chapter 6 of what Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 8, of on and on, Ephesians chapter 1, where we have to do gymnastics to make the Bible now say that the believer can lose their salvation. But what it appears that he's doing is that he's showing people that are going to be amongst the church, that are truly going to be just as Jesus spoke about the wheat and the tares, that while they're so close While there's so many experiences they've been blessed to enjoy, they've been around the things of God, 
but they never came to true saving faith. And I think one of the ways you begin to see this is the way that he writes verse 9. He gets to verse 9, and he says, Though we speak in this way, though we speak of this sober warning that every person should take great caution in, yet in your case, last time we were together, I told you that one of the remarkable aspects of Hebrews 6 is looking at the way that the pronouns work. He speaks very differently in verses 1 through 3. You notice verse 1 of chapter 6, let us leave. Verse 3, and this we will do. And then he gets into verse 4 through 8, and he speaks differently. The pronouns change. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. It, all of a sudden, the, the terminology changes, and then when he gets back into verse 9, he begins to change the way he uses the pronouns yet again. And what he appears to be doing is he's saying, look, there's a real danger for people that are associated with the things of God that never come into the knowledge of God, that never come into a true saving knowledge. A lot of different reasons we could find that, not only the pronouns, but I think one of the biggest arguments that he's not speaking of Christians in verses 4 through 8 is the passage in Hebrews 3.14. And notice what he does. He uses the same term, partakers. He uses four different words as he moves through verses 4 through 8. He uses the term enlightened. He uses the idea of tasted. And then he uses the, the term partakers. And, and it's the same word that you see here at share. And he says in chapter 3, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And what he appears to be saying in chapter 3 is it's not that we earn our salvation by living, enduring until the end, but we manifest the reality of our salvation if we make it to the end. And so immediately, it's like, wait a minute. If, if true shares in Christ make it all the way to the end, then how could some people have shared in him and not made it? I think it builds the argument that he's not speaking of the true believer. He's not speaking of that one. In verse 9, better things concerning you. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. I know that I talked to several of you after the last time we were together, and it's a weighty passage. I think one of the challenges is to understand in the heart of the argument and the heart of the exhortation that the author of Hebrews is making, verses 4 through 8 are not designed to make the true believer doubt. They're designed to compel the true believer to keep going, compel the true believer to keep running, Compel the true believer to move on. I, I told you, you know, one of the things that, that I've learned from many wise people over the years is that the warning passages often do one of two things. They, they, they're useful. The Holy Spirit takes the warning passages of Hebrews, there's five of them, and he uses those passages to spur the true Christian on in their faith. Those that are sluggish, those that are apathetic, the Spirit takes the warning passages and literally shakes them to see the goodness and the reality of who they are in Christ. But you know what else they serve as? They serve as a call for those on the fence of saving faith in Christ to understand the seriousness of the nature of who Christ is. And so when we look at this, it's one of those you know, the old adage, if the shoe fits, wear it. He's confident that the people that he writes to are indeed in the faith. But within every congregation, when we look at the New Testament, we see the reality. First John says, they went out from us because they were not all of us. Apostasy reveals a lack of a true root in Christ. When people commit apostasy, it reveals that they were never a part of the body of Christ. But thankfully this morning, this is encouraging. I pray that that gives you an exhale. You say, wait a minute. 
He, we speak in this way. In your case, beloved, we, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He uses the word beloved here. It's the only time that he uses the word beloved in the entire letter to the Hebrews. They're beloved, and what does that mean? Think about it. This is rich. It means they're the beloved of God. God had set his love on them eternally. God had called them. They were the loved of God. And so he's saying, look, beloved, there's better things for you, things that belong to salvation. You remember back in chapter 3, we saw evidence of this. It wasn't as if he was writing iffy about whether or not they would make it. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. That's the terminology that he uses for those that are in Christ Jesus. The question I want to ask you really as we jump into this today is that as you looked at verses 4 through 8, did it compel you to keep running the race? Did it compel you to closer fellowship to Jesus? Did it give you encouragement to say, wow, I don't need to take this lightly? I need to understand the reality of who I am in Jesus and all that he has for me. So number two this morning, not only do we see a word of comfort, we see a testimony of fruitfulness, a testimony of fruitfulness. Now notice what he does. He begins to show them why he has this confidence. If he's going to say, I'm confident about you, why is he confident? Why would he be confident about them? Is he confident simply because of professions of faith, or is he confident because of something greater? I think we're going to see something way greater. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. As we move through this point, we're going to look at their work, we're going to look at his confidence, and then we're going to go back to God's justice. Let's look at their work. What does he say about what God had done in them? We see immediately that he uses this word work, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. He has noticed your work. And what does the word work mean? I mean, we think of work and we think of a job. We think of people working a job. We think of people working around the house. We think of people doing hard labor. When we look at this word in the Greek, it's interesting because it speaks of good deeds. It speaks of holy acts, of just works. And, and the passage that really gives us an understanding of this is Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For, and then he says this, For we are his workmanship. Now this is fascinating, because if you didn't understand the Bible, and you didn't understand the gospel, you might just be thinking, wow, God is aware of people who try to do good things for him. Well, that would be antithetical to the gospel. That would be uh, like saying those that are under the judgment of God all of a sudden are pleasing to God. So what is he speaking of? This is the beautiful reality that those who once were in Adam, by grace through faith, have been transitioned into the kingdom of God. And now, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, now we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so now people work that are believers as a result of the grace of God that's been poured out in their hearts. I love this because it was through, it says in Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Once we thought we could work our way to God, but then we realized that only the work of Christ could save us. But now in Christ Jesus, he's prepared us for good works. 
And the author wants them to understand that he's seen them. But then he describes their love. He mentions works, but then he defines it further, their love. And then he says, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. I mean, this is remarkable because in chapter 10, we see evidence of their life and their testimony of their persecution that they went through. But here he's saying, look, God is aware of your works and he understands your love for him that's resulted in the way that you've served the saints, the way that you've served the body. I was looking at some commentaries on this, and one thing that really helped me was the reminder that when Jesus is talking to Simon Peter in John 21, you remember, he asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it was after he asked those, after Peter made the affirmative, Jesus commanded him then to do what? To feed his sheep. A love for God vertically is primary. And until there's a love for God, there will never be a proper love for man. It goes back to 1 John 4. I won't sing it to you. I had to sing this as a kid in uh, some children's choir. My mom made me be in the choir. It was painful. But um, I was always the tallest kid, and I was the one in the middle. And all the kids around me, and so the whole crowd would look at me, and I was just terrified the whole time. I was just letting you know how I feel right now, just sharing my heart with you. And in 1 John 4, 7, 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that, lo- he that, kn- he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Wait a minute. Let us love one another, for love is from God. It's the love that he's poured out in our hearts. It's the work of the Spirit that now brings us to spiritual works. It's now because the Spirit is in us that now people begin to love God and love him the way he was called He called us to love him. Jesus said the greatest commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. But then the second great commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. And why is that? Because this is primary. That flows out of it in the second one. The second one will always result. And that's what was happening with these dear people, these Christians we think were in Rome. As they heard this, they were encouraged. He says, for God is not so unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. They were serving the saints. They cared for one another. They loved each other. You get the sense, you remember when Paul would write about his missionary journeys and he would say, wow, you've taken care of me. Your gift, you know, the Macedonians and all the different people that he spoke about, all the people that ministered to him. You get the sense here that the author of Hebrews is like, you know what? Your life towards the people of God reflects the love of God poured out in you. And so when he looks at this, why does that relate to the author's confidence that we see better things concerning you? This is fun. You see, this is a common theme in Scripture. You see, the deep confidence that he believed was because the grace of God had been manifest in their hearts. I want to read a few passages to you. Acts 11, verse 23 says, When he came and saw... The grace of God. Now, notice that phrase. That's amazing. When he came and saw the grace of God. You may be thinking, wait a minute. It's like saying, have you seen the wind lately? You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. You see, in the same way, you could say, you you know, someone might say, wait a minute. You can't see grace, but they could turn around and say, no, but we can see the effects of the Lord Jesus Christ poured out in people's hearts. You see, when when people are changed, the danger is this. The danger is adopting a nominal Christianity that is so wishy-washy that it's only about intellectual understanding, where people say, yeah, I believe Jesus. I believe that. I believe this. I believe that. I believe that. But the true test and evidence of saving faith is, is there spiritual vital sign? Are there vital signs in your life? I remember, I told you this before, but I was a freshman in college playing basketball. 
I was, uh, I was depressed. The girl I really liked broke up with me. And, and she, we didn't, you know, before cell phones. And, and, and I would remember daily going to the mailroom to see whether or not there was a letter in my mailbox. And, and all you had to do was look in there because it had a clear front. And I would look in there, and every day, nothing, 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 nothing. And then one day I saw a letter, and I was fired up. And I opened it up. It was from the person I wanted it to be from, and she broke up with me in a letter. And we really didn't break up. She just wanted <laughs> to back off, I think. But, but, but I was devastated. And I was playing ball. I was lonely. I wanted to go home. And, and I got a chance. And he told me we were off for the weekend. And I, I was south of Macon, Georgia. So it took me about three and a half hours to get to Chattanooga. And I was so excited. I was elated. On Saturday morning, I got to leave the campus in Mount Vernon, Georgia. And I was headed to Chattanooga for a day and a half to see my buddies. And as I got in that car and I was driving towards Macon, Georgia, I had a horrible wreck. My car flipped about five times. I went down in a ditch, and, and I'll never forget, I, all I remember was not remembering much at all. I, I, I started, I remember that sensation of like a slow motion spin as I was literally rotating in the air, and the next thing I remember is I was laying on the side of the road, and people were checking my pulse, and I was laying there, and I looked up, and there was about six people around me, and as I was laying there, I heard them talking, and they were checking my vitals to see if there was any signs of physical life. The question that we have to ask ourselves, the question that we have to pray through, is there any evidence of spiritual vitals in your life? Or would the only thing that you would hang your hat on at the end of the day is some type of involvement with the church and some type of profession? Because what we see here is that he saw the work of God in them. You see this not only in Acts 11, you see it when Paul writes to the church at Colossae. Listen to how he writes. He says, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. You see the parallel here from the passage we're in this morning? He heard of their faith. He heard of their love. And then he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's as if he's saying, this hope has compelled you to the point that you act in belief to the promises of God. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing in chapter 6. Philippians chapter 1, Paul's writing to a different group of Christians, but it's very similar I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, he says in chapter 1, verse 3, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making prayer, my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. I love this. Their participation in the gospel. Why were they participants? Because they had spiritual life within them. They were participants of the gospel from the first day until now. And then he says, and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. What was it that Paul was compelled by to say that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work? Because they were partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see it throughout the scripture and over and over. And what he speaks of here this morning, you know, is there evidence of God's life within you? And I would say from the youngest Christian to the oldest Christian, teenager, don't ever be duped into a profession of faith that has no fruit. An empty profession that bears no fruit in the life of a person who professes Christ is no different than the faith of the devil. No different than the faith of demons. The demons who believe and also shudder, as James chapter 2 says. He speaks to them, but the encouraging thing is, I want to encourage you. I was thinking this morning, one of the things that compels you here as you study this passage is to want to do a better job encouraging the body of Christ. Because you know what? Being your pastor for 14 years, I've been through a lot of things with a lot of you, and I want to just say I am so encouraged because in so many of your lives, I see the evidence of the life of God within you. This is an encouragement. This is where, you know, you ought to ask yourself today, 
Lord, is there anybody in my life right now in this church body that when I look at their life, I'm compelled to follow you? When I look at their life, I see your love. When I look at their life, I see your grace evident in them. If that's the case, don't even hesitate to tell them. And don't even hesitate to say, man, your faith really encourages mine. Your faith really spurs me on to righteousness. And here the author of Hebrews is writing that way, but then he goes back. Let's full circle back to the beginning of verse 10. He says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown. How does the justice of God play into this? Well, this is fascinating because in Romans, it would make you scared if you didn't read much of the verse. If all you read was, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, it ought to make you fearful if you didn't know the gospel. Romans 2 says, he will render to each one according to his works. What does that mean? The God who knows our hearts. Have you ever heard that? I mean, I used to say that too, you know, God knows my heart. Well, the problem is only those in Christ Jesus is that somewhere where we can begin to be safe because those outside of Christ, God knows that the heart is deceptively sick. He knows the heart. He knows your heart. And the heart is evil before him. But, but this is miraculous here. I pray you'd see this. What's miraculous is, is that apart from Jesus Christ, all men and all women, all boys and all girls will be judged for their works. And God is just to judge their works and giving them punishment for acts of treason committed against him. It's sort of the Romans 1, where Paul says, you know, rather than worship the creator, we worship the creation. Rather than worship God, we went our own way. We, we literally pushed down the truth of righteousness and did our own thing. But the beauty of this is because of Jesus Christ. You see, Romans 6 gives us the truth at the beginning of that verse, for the wages of sin is death. But then look what he says. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what's so beautiful and exciting and encouraging to those in Christ Jesus is that through the work of Jesus and his death for us, we are forgiven. And now his life is in us. And his life works in us. And God is aware of it. And think about this. And rather than his justice resulting in our judgment, because of Christ Jesus, now his justice results in our reward. That's that's miraculous. I wonder if you're here today and you're thinking, you know, I need to be a better person. I need to be a better this or better that. And even though you've heard the gospel presented to you many times in your life, maybe as a teenager, maybe as a child, you've never come to the place of realizing it really is this good of news, that it's only as the broken, condemned sinner puts his hope not in his own work, but in the work of Jesus Christ It's then and only then that that person now experiences freedom and forgiveness. And now God was aware of them. I love this because it's not just a reminder of good news of the gospel. It's a reminder that God sees. Have you ever uh, done something and you were a little bit sad that no one saw it? (laughs) I think if we're honest and we're really transparent, we could get that real with each other, you know? Maybe as a teenager, you did something really nice for somebody and you wish. It's sort of, isn't it? it's sort, it's sort of convenient, isn't it, that sometimes these celebrities, they do nice things and it just happened to be videoed on, on social media. It's amazing, isn't it? We get to all see how good they are. And, uh, but you know what? We can relate to them, can't we? I can. Because there's been so many times in my life that I had this kind of pharisaical, self-righteous attitude where I just wanted people to see me doing something I thought was good and for me to get some credit out of it. But, but you even get off of that and you get to a pure angle. Sometimes as you live as a Christian in a world of hurt, in a world of sorrow, in a world of consequences and, and circumstances and all things, sometimes you just start thinking and you're tempted to get goofy in your thought patterns and you think, does God really see Does God really know where I'm at? And I love this because we see the character of God here. He's omnipresent. 
God is not unjust. He sees it all. Be comforted by that today. He knows where you are this morning. He knows where you are. And it's not by accident that you're sitting in a room where the gospel of Jesus Christ is being lifted high. It's not by accident that you're, being sitting, you're sitting in a room where you're being told that the only hope for yourself in life and in death is in the work of Jesus Christ. And his goodness and his grace is aware of where you are. It's aware of your life. Christian, maybe you're going through struggle after struggle after struggle, and you're thinking, but does God even see Does God even see what I'm dealing with? Does God even see my desire to follow him? He sees it all. Be comforted. These these precious persecuted Christians that Hebrews is dealing with were assured of the fact that God was aware of where they were. But you know, as we keep moving here, we see not only a word of comfort, a testimony of fruitfulness, but a desire for assurance, a desire for assurance. We had a lot of fun in Orange Beach uh, crashing Charlie's and Elizabeth's condo, and uh, they were very gracious. And one of the things that was nice about being in that condo, we were on the 21st floor. That's scary with little kids, you know? It's a little scary. You're looking way down. I, I mean, true that if you're eight floors up or 21 floors up, it's, you know, you fall out, you're in trouble. But, but nonetheless, one day, so Ben had a great time. This was a fun trip because Ben got to experience the beach and he got to experience the pool. And so they had this, uh, they had this water slide. And, and I, in our family, the way it rolls is I'm like the overprotective person. I'm always like, watch out, watch out. And bounces me out, and the kids are walking on the roof. She's like, just be careful. And I'm like freaking out, no. <laughs> and, and, and so like one day, Ben's out there, and I'm like, buddy, you can't get on the slide. You're just too little. One day you'll get to enjoy this, and it'll all happen for you. But it's just not going to happen. He looked at me just with these eyes of sadness and despair. And I was just like, you know, it's just part of being a good dad. Well, the next day I'm in the condo, and I'm upstairs, and all of a sudden somebody goes, Ben's on the slide. <laughs> And I went over, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. And I looked up from the 21st floor, and all I could see was his little red floaties. And he was stretched out. It was amazing. I got a video if you want to see it. He's stretched out, and it's like he's literally just floating on the slide. It's like throwing him around, and he loved it. He loved it. He would cut off people. He would go up the steps, and there would be four or five people, and Ben would get right in front of him and go. He thought he owned the slide. His greatest desire while we were there those first two days, was nothing but that slide. I want you to see something here because I want you to understand the heartbeat of the author of Hebrews. I really believe it's safe to say that for the Christians that he's writing to, his greatest desire that he could possibly have for his brothers and sisters in Christ was to live out of a full assurance of hope until the end, because he knew something. If you live fully assured, your Christian life is much different than if you're unassured. Can you relate with me today? For years of my life, I dealt with assurance issues in the faith. I struggled all the time with whether or not I was a Christian. I struggled all the time. Every time that the the sinner's prayer was offered, it was like I was praying it. I would have won the award for saying the sinner's prayer. It was like every time it was done, I was like, it can't hurt to do it again. It can't hurt to double down. It can't hurt. I didn't have a sense or understanding that God had set his love on me, that God had pursued me, and God began to show me that. But I want you to see something. So many times when I went through assurance issues, it related to the fact that I was very sluggish and very lazy in my spiritual life. I want you to see something here. Look what he does in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. He longed for it. What does it mean to be assured? I was reading one pastor named Brian Borgman really helped me with this. And and he said, you know, assurance is, number one, the reality that I've been born again. 
Number two, it's the reality that I know I've been forgiven. Number three, it's the reality that I know that I have eternal home waiting me. And, and he said, you know, that is the assurance. And he went on to say, he said, you know, if you live fully confident in those three things, and it is fully all over you, your Christian life will be experienced much different from the person who's walking and living in doubt. And, and the heart of what he's saying here is he's saying, look, I desire that each one of you, anyone in the body of Christ, walk in this assurance. Some people in the church today say, no, you can't, you can't know if you're saved. A lot of people that even John Wesley, who believed you could fall away, believed that you could only have assurance of hope till the end that day, that day, that, that particular day. You couldn't have it for tomorrow, but you could have it for today. Other people would say, no, it's very haughty and very proud if you were to say that you knew you were saved. That can't be biblical. But what we look at here is actually evidence of the fact that God desires that his people live out of the tangible experience of feeling assured, that they live out of the understanding. It reminds you of Romans where Paul says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. And, and I agree with so many that it's like there's so many passages that deal with assurance, and each passage has to be handled differently, and then, then and only then can we begin to see how they complement one another. But when we look at this, notice, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. The same what? The same earnestness. What does the word earnestness mean? It means diligence, zeal. Show the same zeal, but, but what is he speaking of? The same earnestness that was reflected in verse 10. What did he say about their life? He said, God's seen your work. God's seen your love. God's seen your service. And so what is he speaking of? He's saying, look, never neglect that. Show the same earnestness you've already shown and continue in it. Continue out of it. Continue living by it. I wonder this morning if there's a time in your life, in your past Christian life, where you would say, you know what? I was closer to the Lord Jesus than I am now. Maybe you could look at me and say, you know, it's crazy. Is like, I remember three or four years ago, I was in God's word on a regular basis. I was being renewed by his word. God was giving me a heart and a hunger for the things of God. And I've literally found myself becoming spiritually apathetic. Whether I come to church or whether I read the Bible or whether I'm involved in the spiritual disciplines, it's sort of like, you know, just pick the day and flip a coin, whether or not that's something I'm interested in. And what is he saying here? He's saying, look, I want you to know something, that the very way that God has graced you, the very way that you've been learning to walk by faith. You see, when we look at these terms, I wish I had time to unpack it. We could look at passage after a passage that the work that we do flows out of faith. The love that we show flows out of faith. The service that we demonstrate flows out of faith. And what's the message of Hebrews? I remember when we started this letter, a lot of us, if we were honest, we would say that probably the one common thing a lot of us would know about Hebrews is chapter 11, which is what? The chapter of faith. And what does he say in chapter 11, verse 6? And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And what does he seem to be doing here? He's saying, look, I want you to live out of the assurance of hope until the end. I want you to show the same earnestness. I want you to keep on doing the same things because in doing the same things, it's going to lead to you experiencing the full assurance of your hope. I wonder today if you're with us and you would say, you know what? I'm not walking in the assurance that I'm a child of God. I really don't know. I want to believe that I am. 
I want to believe that I'm a Christian. I once had an assurance that I don't have now. Listen closely to what he's doing here. This is food for our soul. He's saying, look, I long that you recognize that the key to you walking fully assured is literally keep on doing the same things. Don't grow dull in your hearing. I remember in Colossians where he says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. Isn't it strange how sometimes we forget the most basics, basic truth? He says, look, keep on going. Keep on going. He longed for their assurance. He longed for it. Assurance involves confidence. It involves the, the understanding. It brings us hope. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. What happens as they live with the same earnestness by the grace of God in order to have the full assurance of hope until the end? In order that, verse 12, you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You realize the connection here? He says, I want you to continue with this same level of diligence, this same level of earnestness that's been seen in you already. And as you keep walking by that same principle of walking by faith, what did he warn them with? He said the people of Israel heard the good news but received it with what? Unbelief. What is the mark of the people of God that are walking in assurance? They hear the good news and they hear it and they respond with belief. They keep on doing the same things that they had once done before. And what does he say is a result of it? A result is assurance. But look at verse 12. In order that you may not be sluggish. You know what you learn there? What if you were here today and you said, hey, the only thing I care about this morning being at church, I want to know how to be sluggish. I want to be a slug. Isn't that fun? I want to be a slug. How are you going to be a slug spiritually? By not continuing in the same things. Do you realize something else that hit me here? Do you see how often a lack of assurance points to the reality of spiritual sluggishness. Sometimes what we want with assurance is somebody just to tell us not to be worried or not to doubt. You may have had that happen before. You go to a preacher, you go to somebody and say, I'm doubting my faith. And they say, nope, God cannot lie. Do you believe the truth? Yes, I do. Never be doubting again. I'm not saying there's not a place and a time and a context for that. But what I'm suggesting is often we don't give the advice of Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. He says, look, I long for you to keep on diligently, diligently living, to keep on diligently walking by faith, to keep on working, to keep on loving, to keep on serving the saints in order to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not fall into the trap of being sluggish and dull of hearing. You know what's fascinating is that word sluggish is used in another passage in Hebrews. It's the passage that we looked at in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become sluggish of hearing. That's the word. But then what was his antidote for it? He says later on, if you, if you got your Bible, go to Hebrews 5.14. My slide messed up there. Look at verse 14. But solid food, chapter 5.14. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, to distinguish good from evil. Do you remember that passage we talked about? He is calling them not to be dull of hearing, but he's calling them to godly train. We, we, so many of us think about training, you know? How are you going to lose weight? How are you going to burn carbs or whatever? Not carbs, but whatever. Maybe burn carbs. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm showing myself here. 
But we've got all these workout plans, don't we? We know how to do this, know how to do that, know how to do this, know how to do that. We know how to burn this, know that, blah, 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 blah. But wait a minute. What if we took the same desire as it relates to the spiritual life? We'd begin to find that as we cultivate an abiding in Jesus Christ, as we walk in him, we experience the sweetness of the assurance of his spirit within our life. The author of Hebrews, far from wanting them to run scared and run doubting into the night, wants them to be Christians who live out of a full confidence of assurance of hope until the end. I wonder what today's your greatest desire. Seriously, what's your greatest desire? If we were really honest, you know, is it a boat? Is it an SUV? Is it a new house? Is it something for your kids? You know, maybe kids, you want to be athletic, you want to do this, you want that. But I'll tell you something, the more you look at the benefits that flow out of the assurance of walking in Christ, you would find that the greatest thing outside of knowing Christ and being his, the greatest reality is to live fully assured that you are his and that your future is certain in Christ Jesus. But you will never experience the joy of that blessing while you live spiritually sluggish lives. I tell you, you could mishear this and immediately think, wow, look at what I got to do. 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 And, but, but I want you to be comforted by something. It's only by the grace of God, because Jesus is our great high priest, and because Jesus is the faithful builder over the house, that we even have opportunity by his grace to live out of the assurance that we are his and that he is our Lord. I was looking at some notes as we closed this morning. Some notes that from Brian Borgman. And he says, look, you know, put that faith to work. Let it demonstrate in love and service. The result will be full assurance flowing over. He says, there's an upward spiral. As there's diligence in faith, diligence in good works to full assurance, it produces more faith and patience, which in turn leads to more diligence and good works, which in turn leads to more full assurance, which in turn leads to a deeper faith. I pray this morning we would see that the invitation that God gives us in Christ Jesus is the greatest blessing of our lives and we are buying into the lie of the flesh, the lie of the world, and the lie of the devil if we ever think we are getting a better deal in our day-to-day -day life by not pursuing Christ with all our hearts. And the author of Hebrews wants them to experience that full assurance until the end. This is, uh, I remember years ago, I think it was Federal Express, the, the guy that owned the company, it was about to go under. And um, the guy went to Vegas and took everything that Federal Express had as an asset, everything, and basically said, all right, we're going to spin the roulette wheel, and whether this company makes it is going to happen based on the result of this roulette wheel. Here we go. And he won. He put all in, everything in. You see, what is he saying here at the end of this passage? He's saying, believing the promises of God. Look at this, this verse here, verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's the idea of being a Christian that goes all in on the promises of God. You're all in. You're all in. You know those promises are yet to be, many of them are future. You know they're yet to be fulfilled. But as you walk in this assurance, as you continue in the same things, 
Your faith is being built. God is gracing you with a faithful patience to trust the promises of God. Do you see how that would be the opposite of a person who's dull, lazy, forgetful, in danger of apostasy? See what he's doing here? He's saying, look, rather than being these people that are dull and lazy, live out of everything Christ has called you to. It's only by his grace. So this morning as we close, a word of comfort, a testimony of fruitfulness, a desire for assurance. Next week as we start, we'll continue in verse 12 and move down to verse 16. Would you bow your head with me? God, I pray that we would live out of this assurance. God, I pray for, for, for Riverside Community Church. I pray, Lord, we wouldn't get distracted by things that are not real measurements. But, oh, God, I pray that we would understand that life is a vapor and that because of Jesus Christ, we now have new hope. I pray, oh, God, that we wouldn't just live as people who are just halfway. But, oh, God, I pray that we would live with the same eagerness that we've had before. I pray that we'd walk in diligence of faith. I pray, God, that we'd live responding to the good news with belief. And, oh, God, I pray that we would see the love and the grace of God that desires that we actually live assured, assured that we are the beloved of God. I pray today, Lord, if there's sin that's taken place, that's hidden, that's being practiced right now, Lord, where people have come into this room today and it's just like they just stored away in their mind. Oh, God, I pray we would see your call on our life. Oh, God, help us to be repentant. Lord, help us to be receptive to your word. Oh, God, help us to live out of a deep assurance that literally will guide us through anything. I pray, Lord, that we would understand and learn from this. Lord, help us to meditate on these words. I pray we would just look into the truth of your scripture. And, Lord, I pray your spirit would guide us into following this obediently. But, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your care for us. Thank you that you desire these things. Thank you, Lord, that you've been so gracious. You've not only graciously saved us, but now you're not even overlooking those things that happen that are good works in our life. That, Lord, you keep showing us goodness and graciousness in all, oh, Lord. I pray that we would have a firm hope until the end that we would imitate Abraham. We would imitate those heroes of the faith, Lord, that were just normal men impacted by your spirit. I pray, oh Lord, that would be true of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.